Amen. <clears throat> well, in our previous studies, uh, we have seen that in John's uh, heavenly vision of the throne room, that all of creation is engaged in worshiping the one who sits on the throne and now the lamb who is before the throne. But the question comes to mind, why are they worshiping? Now, as we read through chapters 4 and 5, we don't see a command to worship. There's not a command to worship. And frankly, there really is no such need for that command. And the reason there's, there's no reason for such a command is simple. And we looked at this last week. Worship is the natural response. It is the right response. It is the rational response. It is the reasonable response of the creation to the creator. But because of sin, we don't do what is right, reasonable, and rational. We do just the opposite. We saw from Romans chapter 1 that we're not worshiping the creator. We have turned and said to worshiping the creation. So in chapter 4, the focus of that chapter was the worship of the one who is seated on the throne. And just let me briefly review, in chapter 4, we see there are three clear reasons why God is to be worshipped. Number one, God is to be worshipped because he is holy. You find that in verse 8, where three times it is said, holy, holy, holy. Second reason that God is to be worshipped is because he is eternal. Again, verse 8, it says, who was and is and is to come. And then in verse 11, we see that God is to be worshipped because he is the creator. Verse 11, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, you may be wondering, well, how is this helpful to me? Well, I asked Ben to specifically read Psalm 150 for our public scripture reading this morning for this reason. Psalm 150 instructs us to worship God and praise God in specific ways. You know, I mentioned last week, some people will say, well, I'm just worshiping. Well, worship, true biblical worship, always has a object, the right object, and the right object is God. So in Psalm 150, in verse 2, we read this, praise him. It doesn't stop there. It says, praise him for his mighty deeds, in other words, the things that he has done. And then it goes on to say, praise him according to his excellent greatness, what he has done and who he is. So when we come to worship and praise, we need to make sure that we are worshiping him in light of who he is and what he has done. So here's the point. The next time that you pray and you want to worship God specifically, you can turn to a passage such as Revelation chapter 4, and you could choose one or more of his attributes that are listed here, and you can worship him in light of his character and his mighty deeds such as creation. And that's a much more satisfying way to pray, frankly, than just say, oh, I worship you, or I praise you. Well, why are you worshiping me? Why are you praising me? Think of who I am. 
Think of what I've done. Surely out of all that I am and all that I've done, you can come up with something that you can praise me and worship me in a very specific way for. Now, if we go to chapter 5 and verse 13, we read there that the God and the Lamb are offered praise. Look at chapter 5, verse 13 with me. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So here again, we see God, the father and God, the son, they're being praised specifically, not generally or generically. So this is helpful when it comes to our prayer time. We start our prayer time. We want to praise and worship God the Father, we want to praise and worship God the Son. Well, guess what? There are very specific things that we can see all throughout Scripture that we can praise and worship them for. Now, when we praise God, what are we actually doing? Well, what we are doing is we are recognizing Him for both who He is and what He has done. Okay? When we praise God... We are recognizing him for what we've heard through our songs this morning from here already. We're praising him for who he is and what he has done. For instance, we can just go to Revelation 5.13 and we see there that every creature recognizes the one on the throne and the lamb uh, that is before the throne, they are recognized as the source of blessing. And the text says that they are recognized for the fact that they are worthy to be honored, to be given honor. That means that they are to be respected. They are to be reverenced. To praise God is to acknowledge the glory of the Father and the Son and to recognize them, as the text does, for their power and their might. So you see here again, when they're being praised, they're being praised very specifically. Say, why are you spending so much time on this? Because I want to help you in your prayer life. I want you to have a richer, fuller prayer life. I want it to be more satisfying both to you and glorifying to God. And the way that that takes place is you become very specific in your praying. And by the way, when you, you're, you're not telling God anything that he doesn't know, but what you're actually doing is you're reminding yourself of how great he is and the greatness of his works. Okay. And let me just focus on God's glory for a moment. In the New Testament, glory is the translation of the Greek word doxa, I think is how it's pronounced. Perhaps that's not right, but it's close enough. And in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word kabod. Now, the word kabod in the Hebrew has the root idea of heaviness. It conveys the sense of weightiness. What's the point? What's the point? Well, here's the point. To acknowledge God as glorious is to acknowledge that God is no lightweight. You see that? To acknowledge that God is glorious is to acknowledge that he's no lightweight. To proclaim the glory of God is to give weight to the God, to who God is. He's a heavyweight, not a lightweight. I don't know if we have any boxing fans in the building, probably not many, but in boxing, they have all these different weight classifications. There's bantam weight, there's for, that's for little bitty fellers, and then there's lightweight, and then there's middleweight, and then there's the heavyweights. Well, God is a heavyweight. He's no lightweight, but sadly, much of the church 
much of the modern church treats God as just that, as a lightweight. Some of you right now are sitting out there treating God as a lightweight. You're not giving him the glory that he deserves. There's very little of a genuine biblical healthy fear of God. But what do we see repeatedly in the scriptures? What do we see throughout the scriptures? We see time and time again that God is no one to be trifled with. And I ask you, what is the impression that your life gives to others about the weightiness of God? Do you live in such a way? Say, well, what does it mean if I'm treating God as a lightweight? It shows up in how you live. You give lip service to God. You're not totally dedicated to God. So what do we see in Scripture? Well, ask Pharaoh if he thinks God is a lightweight. God systematically destroyed every one of the Egyptian false gods as well as the nation. Pharaoh would say, don't trifle with God. He's not a lightweight. I think about Herod in the book of Acts, who uh, claimed for himself the glory that rightly belongs to God. And what's the description of what happened to him? He was eaten by worms. Do you think Herod would say, oh, God, he's not much. He's a lightweight. No, he would say, don't trifle with God. In the sights and sounds of uh, what's taking place around the throne, teach us to take God seriously. And now I realize I haven't dealt with this before now, but if you would uh, indulge me and go back to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5, and I want to show you something there. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5, and we'll read this, the first part of the verse. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. So this is part of what John sees, along with the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the sea of glass. He also sees flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Now, for some of us, those words may sound pretty familiar to us because... In Exodus 19, we have the record of God giving his law to the nation of Israel. And in verse 16, we read this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled, trembled. They didn't think God was a lightweight. They didn't think God was anything to be trifled with. They trembled. So what's the message conveyed by these awesome sights? Well, we've all experienced something of this to a minor degree. In the springtime, we have these uh, thunderstorms that roll in, and there are times when there are mighty claps of thunder and brilliant flashes of lightning. 
And I dare say that every one of us have been caught off guard by the clap of thunder and the flash of the lightning, and we instinctively do what? We flinch. Why? Because we recognize the power behind the lightning and the thunder. So what does this say about God's throne? There's power there. God is not to be trifled with. God is not a lightweight. God is to be taken seriously. They convey that God is mighty. That God is awesome. And you neglect him at your own risk. Well, I highlight this simply to aid our understanding of who God is and to help us worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Now, let's turn our attention to chapter 5. And there are two items or uh, two major symbols, two major pictures in chapter 5 that certainly deserve our attention. The first one would be the scroll that is sealed with seven seals. And the second one would be the lamb who is the only one described as being worthy to take the scroll and to open the scroll that's been sealed with the seven seals. So this morning, let's begin by examining the scroll with seven seals. Now, it'd be very easy to just kind of just do a drive-by on this and say, oh, yeah, it's a scroll. It's a rolled-up piece of papyrus, and uh, no big deal. Let's move on to something else. No, there are specific lessons. There are specific things that we need to take away from the scroll. Obviously, that's why God has seen fit to put it in Scripture, is to teach us something and to enlighten us about some things. First of all, let me say this. The importance of the scroll cannot be overstated. Cannot be overstated. John sees in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll that he describes as being sealed with seven seals. So what do we know about the scroll? First of all, we know who the author is. Say, well, who's the author of of the scroll? Well, the author is the one seated on the throne. The author is the ancient of days that Daniel saw in his vision. The author of the scroll is God Almighty. The author of the scroll is the one who has an eternal plan and purpose. The author is the one who controls all the events and the affairs of history, and he is using them to achieve his eternal plan and purposes. This is no ordinary scroll. This is no historical relic of only of interest to an archaeologist. Second, because the author is holding the scroll in his right hand, that means that it is authoritative. It's authoritative. The right hand is a symbol of authority. Now, the one seated on the throne has at least a twofold authority in relation to the scroll. First, because of who he is, he has the right to be the author of the scroll. And second, he has the right, he has the authority to carry out every last detail uh, contained in the scroll. No one else has the right nor the ability to make any revisions to what God has written in the scroll. 
There is no junior editor who can come along and can say to God, I think we need to soften this up just a little bit. Perhaps you're a little harsh here. Perhaps we need some more user-friendly language here, God. No. No. God is the author of the scroll. The the scroll is authoritative, and no one has a right to change anything that is in the scroll. Third, the scroll is comprehensive. Notice that John says that it was written within and on the back. Now, normally, because of the construction of the scroll, it was only written on one side. But the scroll that John sees is written on both sides, which indicates the comprehensiveness of the scroll and the completeness of what is written on the scroll. Now, here's an important detail to keep in mind. Everything that follows in the book of Revelation comes out of this scroll. Everything. The trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, everything comes out of this scroll that has been sealed with seven seals. The scroll, therefore, contains the entirety of God's will. The contents of the scroll unfold God's will for the redemption of the elect as well as the judgment of the unbelievers. Fourth, the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now remember that in Revelation, the number seven represents what? It represents completeness. Therefore, whatever is written in the scroll is complete. Nothing is left out, nor is anything left to chance. It's firm. It's fixed. It's predestined. God has said it. God has written it down. It will happen. Fifthly, not just anyone can break the seven seals and open the scroll, nor can just anyone look into the scroll. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So what do we know about the scroll? Number one, we know the author is written by God. Secondly, we know it's authoritative. We know that it's comprehensive. We know that it's complete. And we know that it can only be opened by the one who is worthy to open the scroll. So John sees the scroll, and then he begins to describe what he hears from a mighty angel. What is this mighty angel doing? What is he saying? Well, look again with me at verses 2 and 3. And I saw a mighty angel, this is John, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Whether we realize it or not, this is one of the saddest verses in Scripture. The picture is this. This mighty angel... His voice is heard throughout the entirety of God's creation. His voice is heard in heaven, including the far reaches of every distant galaxy. His voice is heard for trillions of miles throughout all of the numerous universes and galaxies that exist. There's not any part or corner of creation in which the voice of this angel is not heard. 
And what is he asking? He's asking, is there even one person? Is there anyone who is able to take the scroll and open it? Is there anyone? We just need one. Is there anyone in all of God's creation who can step forward and take the throne, unseal the scroll, and let us know what's in it? As the echo of his mighty voice begins to recede, an overwhelming sense of sorrow and grief strikes John as he realizes that no one is able to answer the call. There is no one among God's creation who is able to take the scroll and look into it and reveal its contents. No one in all of God's creation. Now, it's important that you get this. No created being is able to step forward and open the scroll. There's only one person. There's only one who's capable of opening the scroll. Now, when John realizes that there's no one who's able to step forward, he begins to weep, and he describes himself as weeping loudly. He's wailing in despair. Why does he weep so? Well, let me give you the opinion of three commentators. Vern Poitras explains... He says the destiny of John, of the church, and of the universe itself hangs in the balance over the question of whether someone can open the scroll. Richard Phillips comments this way. He says, undoubtedly, part of the reason for John's weeping arose from his awareness of his own unworthiness and that of the entire human race. Phillips goes on to say, as a man, John now looks upon the scroll and hears that none is worthy to open it, and he tastes the bitterness of man's sinful condition. And why is no one worthy? Because of the decision made by Adam and Eve, God's original creation. They made the choice to do what? To defy their creator, resulting in mankind's utter unworthiness. Simon Keesmaker writes this, John shed copious tears in a demonstration of profound grief because of the sealed scroll that held the key to redemption of God's people. If the scroll remains sealed, God's plan of salvation would not be executed and the human race would be condemned forever. Do you see why John was weeping? John understood this. If there is no one who was able to step forward, then he, he, as the rest of all of humanity, was damned, doomed forever. And he weeps. And the deafening silence to the question uttered by the mighty angel speaks to mankind's total unworthiness. Now, if the chapter ended there, we'd all be in a bad state, wouldn't we? In fact, we wouldn't even be here if it ended there. But in the midst of his tears, John hears the voice of one of the 24 elders speaking to him, and he speaks to him and to us words of comfort. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and his seven seals. In essence, the the elder says to John, John, all is not lost. John, the situation is not as bleak as you thought it was. John, there is one who possesses the capability, the ability the worthiness to open the scroll and break the seals. 
And just when John thought all that was all was lost, just as John was in the throes of despair, he's told to weep no more. Why? Because there's no reason to weep because there is one who is worthy to open the scroll. And who is this one who is worthy to open the scroll? Well, the elder provides John with two reasons. And this morning, we're just going to look at one in our remaining time. But I'll give you the two reasons. First reason is he is worthy to open the scroll because of who he is. And second, he is worthy to open the scroll because of what he has done. And both are necessary traits in order to qualify the lamb to take and open the scroll. But just for a couple minutes, let's look at what he has done. What has the lamb done that makes him worthy to open the scroll? And it can be summarized in one word, and that one word is conquered, conquered. The elder says, the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered. That means that he has overcome. Now, that word overcome, that's familiar to us, right? We've just come through the seven letters to the seven churches, and we repeatedly came across that word. Repeatedly, we read of the Lord's promise to those who overcame. And we even read of what Jesus said about himself. If you look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says here, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I want you to focus for a moment on the picture of Jesus here. How do you picture Jesus? If you're my age, you probably grew up with some relative having this picture of Jesus hanging in the house where he's kind of looking up like this. He's got the light shining on him. Not necessarily bad, but Jesus is so much more than a picture on a wall, amen? How is Jesus referred to here? He's not called Jesus, is he? He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah, and we'll look at that next week. But he's a lion. I almost called this sermon from a lamb to a lion. He's a lion. What do we know about lions? What do we call them? We say they're the king of the jungle. They're an apex predator. Few dares to challenge the power of the lion. The lion is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of ferocity. You mess with the lion at your own risk, amen? But a physical lion does have some who can conquer it. But the lion of the tribe of Judah, none can conquer. And you do so at your own risk if you try to conquer him. So the elder conveys incredibly good news to John. The elder really delivers a message of joy. In that word overcomer, there's a sense of joy. John, cheer up. Quit crying. 
Don't worry. Be happy. There is one who is worthy, and he's worthy because he has conquered. Say, so what has he conquered? Well, he has conquered death and hell. He is the king who has ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. As a conqueror, he is worthy to take the scroll, break the seals, unroll the scroll, and unleash God's plan for the ages. Now, here's the marvelous thing. Do you realize that because Jesus has conquered, we all share in his victory? That's incredible. We will see here that we will sit with Christ on his throne. Paul told the church in, in Rome, no, and all these things, we are, we're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors, not because we're such good people, strong people, intelligent people. No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I wonder how often do we think about Jesus as the one who has conquered on our behalf? Do you realize he conquered for us? He conquered for his people? Well, I think there are at least two implications of the fact that Jesus has conquered on our behalf. Here's the first one. It's obvious you could come up with these, no problem. The first implication is that is that there was something that needed to be conquered. Amen. Why do we need a conqueror? Because there's something that needs to be conquered. Now, how does the Bible describe all of those who are born in sin? What is our relationship to sin, if you can say it that way? Well, what the Bible makes it clear that the, all those who are born into sin, they are what? They are the slaves of sin. We are in bondage to sin. We are captives to sin. We are powerless in the face of sin. That's our natural state. That's what we are born into. The Bible describes the sinner as having absolutely no hope. The Bible describes the sinner as being helpless, hopeless, and powerless to free themselves from the clutches of sin. We need a conqueror. We need somebody to come in and storm the gates and liberate us. That's what Christ has done. God sent his son to be our conqueror, and to release us from our bondage to sin. Second implication is, if God had to send the conqueror, it is obvious that we were not able to conquer it ourselves. Right? We lack the ability to conquer the thing that was dominating us. We lack the ability, the power, the might, the strength to free ourselves from the clutches of sin. Try as we might, try as we might to reform ourselves, try as we might to become good people, try as we might to, to just be an all-around good guy, we can't do it. Why? Because we are in bondage to sin. We have a sinful nature. Say, how sinful is our nature? Well, the Bible says that even our best works are as, what, filthy rags in God's sight. Why? Because God is holy, holy, holy. And we are unholy, unholy, unholy. We couldn't conquer sin. We couldn't deal with sin. 
The best, the best we could do is try and corral it for a little while, try and stuff it down, try and reform ourselves, trying to be better people. We'll make New Year's resolutions. We'll take the promise. But it comes roaring back every time. The reality is we need a deliverer. We need a conqueror. We need a redeemer. And that's what we'll see next week. The lamb is worthy to open the scroll because he was slain. And what's it say? And by his blood, he ransomed people for God. He accomplished it. For a certain group of people, he ransomed people for God. So I have to leave you with this. Have you been freed from the power of sin? Or are you still a slave to sin? And if you are still a slave to sin, the gospel is good news for you. Because the one who is worthy to take the scroll, to open the scroll, can deliver you from your sin. He can deliver you from the captivity of your sin. But here's the kicker. Forgiveness isn't automatic and freedom isn't automatic. You know, we're coming up on here on the Christmas season. We'll have all the pagans singing the Christmas carols. And, the, you know, they'll sing some of them, give them the impression like, well, Jesus came to, to save us all, so let's go out and have a big time and do what we want. No, here, here's the kicker. You must want to be delivered from your sin. Or to say it another way, as a prisoner, you have to want to be set free. You must be willing. And here's, here's where a lot of people stumble. You must be willing to give up everything for the freedom that only Jesus can provide. But in giving up everything, here's the conundrum, you gain everything. And if you're willing to give up everything for what Jesus offers, he will deliver you and he will be your conqueror. Well, let's pray.